I hope it goes without saying that God is really bent on making himself known. Now, you've got to be careful how we say that because God has made himself known. The very creation that we live in makes his glory known day by day, night by night. Anytime you look at the stars or the sun or the moon or other people, you see evidence of God's existence and something of his power. And so God is has made himself known. But through his people, he intends to make himself known in a deeper way. He used the nation of Israel as a a people to represent himself among the other nations that they were surrounded by. Now, in this era, the Lord uses the church, those people who've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, to be the salt and the light of the earth. And so, we represent him and represent his message to this world. That's why we spent eight hours yesterday in the front yard of our church handing away free things, not so much just to fill people's attics with more stuff or closets with more things, but because we as the church have the saving message of the gospel, and we want to hold that out to people. We want people to know God. We, know, we want people to know him by the words that we use, the gospel that we preach, and the lives that we live. In many ways, Israel had that responsibility as well. They were a nation that was situated in the middle of the world to hold out to the world the reality that there is a God and what he is like. In God's plan, Israel was to be a light to the nations. And we think about that in the context of this book of Hosea that we've been going through. We're coming to the end now. And I want us to keep in mind as we go through this passage in Hosea 12 today that God had an intention for Israel. His intention was that they would be a nation that was set apart to represent him to the nations around them. He had many purposes in Israel, and that's at least one of them. Israel was born out of the promise of Genesis 12 that their forefather Abraham would be the father of a nation, and actually of multiple nations, and through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And as you follow through the plot line of the Old Testament, you see that God focuses his design on the nation Israel in the Old Testament as the means by which the world would know God and know his ways. In Exodus 19, verse 6, it's held out to us that Israel had the role of being a holy nation, and a kingdom of priests. They were to be a people that would represent God to the peoples and the peoples to God. So they had a huge responsibility. Israel had on their shoulders really the sole responsibility of a people on the planet Earth during the time that they were living in this time of Hosea to hold out the truth about God to the other nations. And if you look with me at Hosea chapter 11, verse 12, I hope you see the seriousness of the accusation that is made against Israel. Hosea 11, verse 12 says, Ephraim, Ephraim was the chief tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. 
If Israel was to be a nation that represented God to all the nations around them, and they had surrounded God with lies, then it's fair to say that they weren't doing their job very well. They were to be the center of the nations, just geographically speaking. They were at the intersection of many crossroads of the ancient world. But beyond that, the center of the nation's Israel, this very center of their nation, was to be Jerusalem. That was their capital city. Jerusalem was to be a prominent city. It was a city that you'd always go up to. You'd walk up to reach it. It was a mountain peak. The center of the city of Jerusalem was to be the Temple Mount. And the center of the Temple Mount was to be the Temple Building. And the center of the Temple Building was to be the Holy of Holies. And the center of the Holy of Holies was to be the Ark of the Covenant, where the Ten Commandments that God had etched into stone were placed inside. And above that Ark was placed a box that had, or a top, a lid that had cherubim of gold engraved on it. And above that, the presence of the Lord was to dwell. So the very center of the earth was a place where God would represent himself. And the very place that was, was the very place that the law was kept. And that was the center of the main city on earth, of the main nation on earth, to represent God and his ways to the earth. And emanating out of that place, the intention was blessing, the knowledge of the one true God and his ways, the Ten Commandments, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images. You shall not use the name of the Lord in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath. And on and on. All of that was to be representative to the nations of the wisdom of God, the virtue of God, the holiness of God, the greatness of God, His perfections, His excellencies, His holiness. And Israel would be blessed, and through them the nations would be blessed as they see a wise and understanding people who live in accordance with their God. But Ephraim, the chief tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel, has surrounded me with lies. It's as if this nation that's meant to represent God to the world had put up a bunch of signs around the temple that were full of lies about God, that misrepresented God to the nations. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22 and 23, it says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned, profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Israel botched it. What a tragedy! when you consider that the great God, the creator of everything, was surrounded by lies, and so that the people of the earth had a lie to believe instead of the truth. In one sense, the waywardness of Israel, their rebellion against God, their idolatrous ways, 
revealed something about God. It revealed many things about God. One of the things it revealed was his patience. Because Israel did not do this for just a short period of time. They did it for hundreds of years. And God was patient with them. In Isaiah 65, verses 1 through 3, the Lord says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. The Lord exercised his patience. Toward Israel, he held out his hands day by day, offering to them repentance, offering them to return to him. They were stubborn and did not turn, and so he exiled them from the land. And so that nation, Israel, revealed the mercy of God and his severity, his kindness, his patience, and his judgment. Now, we cannot live as though some major event hasn't happened between what we read in Hosea and what time we live in now. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 that long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And it goes on to say that this Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God. And if you've come to know Jesus Christ, you know that he's shined light into your heart. You know him. You know how glorious he is, how good he is. He's the forgiver of sins. He has been patient with you. He's redeemed your life. He's made you have a purpose in this life. He's steered the direction of your life. He's given you fellowship with other people. He's given you a hope of eternal life. He's been good to you, and so you know him. You know him quite personally. You call out to him. You speak to Jesus Christ as if he's your friend because he is your friend. You know what he's like. You know how holy he is. You know that if he were stand before you, that you have no chance of staying on your feet. You're going to be on your knees. And when you get off your knees, you're going to try to give him a hug. You know him. You know what he's like. And so you, church, you know the living Christ. You know the radiance of the glory of God. And it is incumbent on you to represent this Christ, this Son of God, to the nations. And so we look at this text of Hosea, and we think about it in the terms of, okay, Israel failed to represent God to the nations. What can we learn from them about how they stumbled and how they fell from representing God to the nations. So I want you to be thinking in these terms as we go through this text. Think personally, how do you represent the Lord Jesus Christ to the people around us? If people know you or got to know you, what would they know about your God based on your life? Would they know your God is a God worthy to be worshipped because they see you worshipping him? 
Would they know your God as a God worthy to be trusted because you trust him? Would they know your God as a God who is not trustworthy because you're constantly full of fear and panic? Would you know your God as a God who is not kind because you're kind of a meanie? Would, you, would they know your God as a God who's dreary because you don't have any joy? Or would they know your God as a God who is joyful even in the midst of hard times because you are resolved to rejoice even on the darkest days? What would they know about your God based on your life? I hope they wouldn't see lies about your God. I hope they would see the truth about your God. And so we look at this text this morning to understand that this has serious implications for us. One of the reasons I'm convinced that this is one of the ways to apply this text is because in chapter 12, verse 7 of Hosea, it says this, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Now, there's a word there that you can't see as clearly in the English, but the word, if I just said it to you, would make sense in verse 7. It says, a Canaanite in whose hands are false balances. Do you know that word? The Canaanites were the people that Israel was supposed to supplant from the land of Canaan. They were to inherit that land that the Canaanites once dwelt in, and they were to take it over and represent God to the nations. But God makes this accusation against them. The word merchant there in verse 7 is the same word as Canaanite that you see throughout the rest of Scripture. And so the point is God is taking this jab at the people of Israel, identifying them not as Israelites, not as people to represent God to the world, but as Canaanites, the very kind of people who denied God and worshipped idols. That stings. It would be like God saying to us or calling us atheists. You atheists. That hurts. If you heard that, you think, I'm the farthest thing from an atheist. Well, how does your life manifest itself practically in your trust in God? Atheists are those who live as though there is no God, no hope, no law, no absolute morality, no reason not to worry, no reason not to be selfish. Christians live, or believers in Jesus Christ live, as those kind of people who have a God, have hope, have a law, have absolute morality, have reasons not to worry, and have reasons not to be selfish. We represent God to this world and it's important that we do so accurately and we don't surround him by lies. And so we read this text and take moments to think how Israel utterly failed in their responsibility to represent God to the world, and we want to learn the lessons from that so we make sure we represent God to this world. We'll see a couple of things. We'll see that going after vain things leads to a destroyed life. We'll see that dismissing your spiritual heritage ignores why God has called you. We'll also see that arrogant hearts and deaf ears prevent you from hearing God's word. So let's read this text, Hosea chapter 11, verse 12 through the end of chapter 12. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. 
and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. We'll see first that going after vain things leads to a destroyed life. It says that Ephraim feeds on the wind in chapter 12, verse 1, and pursues the east wind all day long. When I say vain things, I mean things that are ultimately empty, but they may not feel empty to us. They might feel like life or death, happiness or despair, riches or poverty. We live in a high-stakes world. It feels that way to us. We might feel any given day on the precipice of falling into the cliff of despair or crossing the bridge of hope. We might feel at any given time like we're going to just bankrupt ourselves or we're going to find the bankroll finally. We feel things are significant and decisions are important, and certainly they are, but oftentimes we think things are more important than they really are. And ultimately, eternally, And before God, they're really empty things. Certain decisions to us might feel like it's all or nothing. And sometimes we think that if we go God's way, it leads to nothing. But if we go our way, it will give us everything we want. Sometimes the way that we think. We have before us a decision and we see God's way leads one way that's going to be hard. It might cost us something. It might cost us the very thing we want, but if we go our way, we can have that thing. And it feels like we have this choice between everything and nothing. Jesus warns us about that. 
And he concurs it is all or nothing, but usually it's the other way around. He actually points out if you go this way, it's nothing. If you go this way, it's everything. It's almost exactly what he says in Mark chapter 8. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? God is after your ultimate and eternal protection. And when you seek to protect your way, by your way, you'll find you're forsaking the God who promises to protect you in his way. And if you choose to go your way, wanting what God gives, you end up forsaking both, and you have nothing in the end. And that's why I say that it's futile to go after vain things. You end up with nothing. It's empty. I don't mean that they feel vain or they feel empty. I mean they are empty. They profit you nothing eternally. And that's what Israel is experiencing in chapter 12, verse 1. When it says Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long, it elaborates what that means when it says they multiply falsehood with violence and violence, they make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. Israel was in a tough spot, historically speaking. We've talked about that the past couple of weeks. They were facing enemies. They are facing threats of really extinction by war. And so they felt like they had a decision to make. They had to preserve themselves, preserve their nation. And so they had a decision to make. And what they did was, one, they went out and did a bunch of assassinations on their kings to try to get the right king on the throne that would rule in the way that they wanted. So they multiplied falsehood and violence. But also to procure their protection, they sought covenants with historically the very people who are their enemies, Assyria and Egypt. They're desperate. They brought oil to Egypt as a tribute to pay to them. They made a covenant with Assyria, the vicious people coming from the east to destroy them. The problem with that was Assyria was this world power. Egypt wasn't quite as strong at that point. And so they tried to make an alliance with Assyria, but behind Assyria's back, they went to Egypt to try to get Egypt's help. Guess how Assyria felt about that? Not good. And so they ended up losing both, and they had nothing. It was a life-or-death decision, they thought. They thought they made a good decision. And they ended up losing both. In pursuit of their own salvation, they went after all the wrong things. And God describes this as feeding on the wind. That's making foolish alliances. That's pursuing vain things that don't ultimately save you. That's what he's talking about. Or just think about how foolish it would be. You ask somebody, so what are you having for dinner tonight? Wind. You have a big plate of wind. Okay, what are you going to have tomorrow? Some more wind. Next day, wind. They're just going to shrivel up to nothing. You might think the wind tastes good or something. I don't know, but they feed on the wind. And they have no nutrition, no nourishment. That's what God compares their pursuit of these alliances, these pursuit of political strategies to try to fix their problems. It's feeding on the wind. It gives no nourishment whatsoever. 
not just that they feed on the wind, it says they pursue the east wind all day long. The east wind was the wind that came from the east of Israel across the dry deserts to their east, and it would bring a scorching wind into Israel. It was a wind that destroyed. It brought no moisture. It just brought destruction. And God compares what Israel is doing to a person who pursues the east wind, the very kind of wind that destroys you in the end. When we pursue things apart from God, it's like we're trying to nourish ourselves by wind and we're actually pursuing the east wind, the very thing that destroys us. We need to pursue God. We need to seek trusting Him and stop chasing something that would ultimately destroy us. We might be seeking things that seem so important, so necessary to our livelihood. It might be extra income or a spouse or it might just couch itself in terms of, I need, and you fill in the blank. I need some me time. I need a nicer boss. I need to relax by watching this ungodly material. I need to lie about my taxes because I can't pay that much. I need to not be generous because, well, I'm so strapped for cash. I need this vacation. We have all these needs that we think we have. God knows what we need. We need Him. We need to trust Him. Doesn't mean you can't go on vacation. Just means don't look to that for your salvation. Don't look to your ultimate relief there. We pursue those types of things apart from God and we don't find our refuge in Him. And when we do that, we'll find we've just fed on the wind and we come back and the same problems are there or actually they're worse than we left them. God is merciful. That's what I want to call you to. It's what Israel missed. They missed God as the God of protection, the God who is ultimately life-giving. And when they missed that, they missed representing Him to the nations that way. They missed the opportunity to stand still and wait for God to deliver them. And when they missed that, they missed giving the testimony to the nations, the very nations that warred against them, of the great God who was their defender and protector. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29 says, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Oh, we misrepresent God to this world when we pursue ultimate satisfaction in things that are not ultimate. When we rely on the things of this world to give us the things they can't give, but when we wait on God through thick and thin, that's when we represent Him well to the world because in a sense it gives the world the opportunity to see God at work. When we take things into our own hands, we mess it up. That's what Israel did. So we pursue vain things and we destroy our life. Second, when we dismiss our spiritual heritage, we ignore why God has called us. When you dismiss your spiritual heritage, you ignore why God has called you. We tend to be 
short-sighted people, nearsighted, right? We just see what's right in front of us. We have a hard time seeing distance. Um, We need spiritual glasses to be able to look into the past and gain strength from that. We forget what's gone before us. We forget where we came from. We forget our spiritual parents, in a sense. I mean our spiritual ancestors, like Paul and Peter and James and John. I mean names like William Carey and David Brainerd and Corey Ten Boom and Jim Elliott. Oh, we might know their names, or maybe you don't. But one of the things that we forget is that their manner of life can be ours. We look at them and we put them in the hall of faith and we just kind of leave them there to glance and venerate instead of thinking that that is the example of the kind of life that I am to live. Oh, you may not lose your life going to reach the unreached people in the jungles of South America, but certainly you can take confidence from the fact that there are people that trusted God enough to do that, and you can trust God enough to honor him in the day that you have ahead of you. And we forget this. We forget our spiritual heritage, and I think this is one of the reasons chapter 12 of Hosea brings up Jacob. Verse 2, it says, The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. Jacob was a name that was occasionally used to refer to all of Israel, but it refers to their ancestor, the man Jacob, the individual. And that's what it talks about in verse 3. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. In his manhood, he strove with God. And it goes on to describe more of Jacob's life. If Israel was reading this, they would immediately be provoked in their mind to think about their spiritual ancestor, Jacob. And they should think, well, what do I need to learn from this guy? What's, What's there to learn from him? Now, if you've grown up in the church... You know the stories about Jacob. You know his dreams, the ladder. You um, know he put his head on a rock. Uh, You know he put uh, goat fur on him to try to imitate his brother Esau. You know all those kinds of things. And and Jacob kind of has this reputation of being a... I don't know, what's the right word for him? You can think of one. Uh, Kind of a thief, kind of a... uh, Just a a low-down guy who just manipulates things to get his way. That's his reputation, but I would encourage you, if you have some time, to read Genesis 25 through 50 and focus particularly on the relationship that Jacob has with God. Oh, he made mistakes, for sure. He's a sinful guy. But there's this relationship that he has with God that is really outstanding as you read the text. And you see some of these indications here, and I think this is the point that's getting at in verse 4. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The point is all converging on this interaction that Jacob had with God. You know the story how he wrestled with the angel throughout the night, and then the angel touched his hip socket, put it out of place. But Jacob still wouldn't let go until he got blessed by God. It's not a bad illustration for us of seeking the blessing from the Lord. But it also goes on to say that he met God at Bethel. Bethel was this important city in the history of Israel, primarily because of Jacob's encounters there. 
Jacob anointed a rock with oil there. He made it a place where he remembered God. Bethel literally means the house of God. And Jacob had this encounter with God at Bethel. In Genesis 35, verse 10 and 12, it says this, God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. God made this great promise to Jacob, a reiteration of the Abrahamic promise. Just before this, God called Jacob to go to Bethel. And as he went to Bethel, he stopped his whole household, which is a lot of people, and he told the people, put away the false gods from among you. And he collected all of the idols, all of the idolatrous ornaments, and he took them and he buried them. And then he went to Bethel, and God spoke to him, the verses I just read. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, Bethel comes up again. Comes up during the time of Jeroboam the first. Jeroboam the first was the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and one of his first acts as king was he cast two golden idols. Then he put one at the northern kingdom, Dan, and he put one at the south end of his reign in Bethel. And Bethel no longer became a place where God was remembered as the God who makes promises. It was a place where they went to go worship a lie instead of the one true God. And so Israel, who would go to this place, Bethel, and worship a fake God, is called to remember their ancestor Jacob and remember what happened at Bethel, namely that Jacob put away the false gods, worshiped the one true God there at Bethel, and God reiterated his promises to him. And so... Israel is called to remember their spiritual ancestry. They've forsaken it. And in forsaking it, they have misrepresented God to the world. They think God is like a golden calf. What a horrific picture Israel painted of God to the world. God is so holy that Israel's image of God was to be nothing. Behind the veil, there was to be no image. There was to be nothing that would represent God because God is too holy to be represented by anything that man makes. God was going to wait until he had his son take on flesh to be his image. You cannot represent God with an idol. Israel could have been protected from their missteps if they had looked back to their spiritual history and remembered the way that Jacob had lived. They put away the false gods and worshipped the one true God and held fast to his promises. All those people that I mentioned earlier, William Carey, David Brainerd, Peter Paul, James John, those are some of my heroes. And they were imperfect people. They had sins that they needed to confess to the Lord, and yet God used them. The thing that really lingers throughout history as to their reputation is that they were worshipers of God, 
and their worship of God was demonstrated by their trust in God. Do you know the stock from which you come? The line that connects you from now to then? You have a great spiritual family. You've been adopted into this great spiritual family with so many people to look to for courage and strength for how to represent God in this world. Don't forget them. Look back and remember these worshipers of God and take courage. Well, finally, Israel also stumbled in representing God to the world because they became arrogant in heart and they had deaf ears. And as a result, they were prevented from hearing the word of God. Again, in verse 7, it says, A merchant, or a Canaanite, in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I'm rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. The fall of Israel was not unavoidable in one sense. They had plenty of opportunities to turn back to the Lord. They were called back to God constantly. But when I say that it was avoidable, I mean that the reasons for their fall are very well known. It came because prophets came and continued to show them the right way to live, and they continued to reject that way. And the reason they rejected that way is because they are proud of heart and deaf of ears. You see their pride in verses 7 and 8 just oozing out from them. They would use false balances to sell their goods in order to manipulate the poor and gain further riches for themselves. And then in verse 8, they would say, I'm rich. I found wealth for myself. And in all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Well, they were convinced that because they were rich, they were right. Because their methods produced the results they wanted, they were convinced that they had done things right. In other words, the ends justify the means. Oh, we do that all the time. Well, that didn't turn out as bad as I thought it would, so it must have been not that bad. (laughs) It's terrible logic before God. It doesn't work. You've just used a lie to gain wealth, and you say you can't find any iniquity in me. Oh, God can look a little bit deeper. And so they are so proud, they are so convinced that the way that they are doing things was right. And because they are so convinced that the way that they are doing things was right, they didn't have ears to hear anybody telling them they were wrong. So look at what it says in verse 10. I spoke to the prophets. This is God speaking. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. God continually sent prophets to the people to let them know that they were wrong in the way that they were living. But the people were so convinced they were right, they wouldn't listen to anybody say they were wrong. Do you know anybody like that? They're so convinced that they are right. Nobody can tell you that you're wrong. You could have your car stuck in six feet of mud, and somebody tell you, do you know that you're stuck in in the mud? No, I'm not. I'm doing just fine. Keep away. We're so stubborn. We will not listen. 
We need to have a little bit of humility that if somebody criticizes you, even if they're wrong in the way that they criticize you, even if they're kind of being mean when they say it, try to strip that away and think, is there any truth to what they're saying? Did I really get angry? Was that actually a lie? Do I act proud? Listen when people give you a little bit of criticism. Because if you don't, you're just going to shut your heart down and you're going to resist the wisdom of God. We can do this to God when we read his word day after day. We just kind of tune out. Oh, we may have checked off our devotions to the day, but we haven't really listened to the Lord. We haven't let him search our hearts. We haven't been convicted of sin. We have not confessed our sin to the Lord. So they had arrogant hearts, and they had deaf ears. So, verse 11, if there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. When they became so wicked, not listening to the prophets, that they're going to come to nothing. They would still think they're religious. They would make altars, but their altars are like a farmer just scattering stones from his field off to the side of his field. They did not listen to the prophets who were sent there, verse 13, to really guard them. That was the history of Israel as they were led out of Egypt. Prophets were given to guard them. And so we need to listen carefully. The end result of this, verse 14, Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Israel, which was supposed to be the center of the nations, the light to the nations, bitterly provoked God and did not represent him well to the world. Just a note of hope. Verse 6 says, So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Another gentle call. And then verse 9. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the day of the appointed feast. Both of those are gentle calls to Israel. One of them is a promise. Verse 9 is basically a promise that despite all of Israel's rebellion, there is a future day when God will reenact his exodus from Egypt and reestablish this Feast of Booths, which was to be a time of rejoicing. God is a merciful God. We want to display his mercy, but we don't display his mercy by testing him. So I'm not calling you to be perfect, but I am calling you to humility. And if you know your sinfulness and you confess that to the Lord and wait on him, you will better represent God to this lost and dying world than if you just harden your heart and don't listen to his truth. What will God, what will be known about God through you? Will people know his gospel, his mercy, his grace, his righteousness, his ways, his wisdom? Or are you going to seek vain things? 
forget your spiritual ancestry, pursue arrogance and hardness of heart, and then the world will really see nothing except the judgment of God through you. Oh, we want to represent God to this world. May he give us the mercy to do so. Let's pray. Father, we certainly fall short of representing you well to this world. But you are so worthy to be known. Your gospel is so good and so savory. Help us to make it known to this world by our words and our conduct. Father, may we not surround you with lies so that people don't see you rightly, but may we represent you rightly. Give us humility. Help us to bow our hearts and bend our knees before you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.